Hello, dear listener. This is You Are Good. It's a feelings podcast about movies. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. My co-host, Sarah Marshall, will join me momentarily, giving Sarah a quick break with this intro because she is in Portland, Oregon. It's 115 degrees. So we're giving her a quick break so she can cool down. Today, we are watching the movie A Perfect Storm. We're continuing in our summer-themed stretch of movies. We talk about it with our guest, Brianna King, who has a bunch of experience in the fisheries. We talk about why it's special. We talk about its ties to Maine, which is a subject that's near and dear to uh, my heart and to Sarah's heart. I don't think there are many trigger warnings just outside of, um, you know, if you are a person who, like me, spends a little bit of time looking existential dread in the soul, this is one that might pluck some of your strings. (laughs) But in all, this is my sweet spot for a conversation, like dark and fun. (laughs) I think you'll enjoy it. If you know the show, you you know what we're all about. And uh, this is going to go to those places. It would be worth saying that The Perfect Storm is, of course, a 2000 film adaptation of Sebastian Younger's book by the same name. It's about the Andrea Gale, which is a commercial fishing vehicle that uh, went down, went into the sea in the perfect storm of 1991. It's directed, by the way, I should tell you, by Wolfgang Peterson, uh, who directed The NeverEnding Story, which I'm sure, if you've seen it as a kid, screwed you up in a significant enough way that you're here hanging with us <laughs> in Air Force One, in Troy, in Poseidon. You know, the Wolfgang Peterson. You're in for a treat. I love this chat a whole lot. You Are Good is made possible with support by Knack Factory, which is a commercial content video production company based in Portland, Maine, but does work throughout the East here United States. If you need video produced for, you know, your commercial venture, for some message that you have, you need to make something creative, you want to, uh, I was going to say you want to do a proposal, but you know, you have TikTok for that. And that's not even a thing that Knack Factory does as far as I can tell. But if you need video produced, <laughs> also, why would you need a proposal? It's a, it's a tune. But if you need video produced, talk to the folks at Knack Factory. It's also made possible by you, dear listeners. Thank you so much to everyone who supports our Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. You help make this possible. Our next Patreon episode, it'll be out sometime soon, sometime in the next handful of time, is about Cruella, which is, uh, I think, a movie people haven't given a fair shot. I I'm looking forward to talking about it with Sarah. We're going to figure out what is happening there. And that's what the next Patreon episode is going to be about. We have relatively regular Patreon episodes. I've been posting there a bit more. And it looks like we're strongly considering, because people have suggested it, having a Patreon-specific Discord server so we can have conversations with y'all that go deeper than what happens on Twitter. So patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you so much to everyone who supports there. Like every week, we're going to have a playlist that accompanies this episode. So look in the show notes for that. Uh, Who knows what's going to be on that? I don't know. I haven't made my selections yet. It's going to be interesting finding stuff for this episode in particular. You know what? I think that's it. I think that's all the talking you need from me before you go into the perfect storm. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. All right, everybody, you are good. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. Let's do this. Mm, I smell copper tone. That means that Captain Linda Greenlaw, a lady vain about her nose, is in my wheelhouse. You doing a turnaround? No rest for the weary. There you go. Flaunting your work ethic. I don't have a work ethic. I just have work. Now, come on, look. The thing is, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm fit to do this. I just don't see the romance in it. But you got it, Captain Greenlaw. I see them come and go. The day I laid eyes on you, I said to myself, she's going to be a good one. You can't be good unless you love it. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Oh, yeah, Alex Steed. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. 
I've been listening to Edward Herman make that sound a lot in the audiobook of the Tommy Knockers, so I he does it better. What sound is it? Uh, yeah. Alex, what is this noise? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Explain this. It's a mainism. It's an agreement, it's an acknowledgement. It's real regional. Oh. Can you introduce yes. our guest and explain the significance of our guest in the context of today's episode? There are multiple significances happening here. This guest is my dear friend, Brianna Bowman King, whose house I have spent a lot of time at in the past few years in Alaska. I am really excited to have you on, A, because I like using this show as an excuse to talk to my friends, and B, because we are talking about the perfect storm. And Brianna's job, I know used to be, and perhaps still is, basically to go out on fishing boats in Alaska and like watch the same three movies <laughs> on fishing boats in Alaska. So I cannot think of a more perfect mesh of guest and movie. Hello, Brianna. Hi. I am so excited. This is my my first podcast. But you had a radio show in college. You, you did college radio. You know, I haven't thought about that in years. <laughs> I forgot. Was it a music show? Yeah. I had one of those too. What song do you think you played the most on that show? Oh my gosh. I think it was around the time I was like listening to a lot of Curtis Mayfield. Wow, that's great. I think the kids needed that. Fitting my freshman year vibe at the time. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love that. And Superfly is the one that's like, got some coke, got some weed, I'm your Superfly. Yeah, yes. That's exactly, yeah. that's like pitch perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Sarah, we're talking about the perfect storm for the the listener who has not seen the perfect storm and was not alive in the year 2000. Can you walk them through what we experienced? The perfect storm to me at this point, because as you know, I'm a giant Ocean's Eleven fan, is like the last moment before Hollywood figured out what to do with George Clooney. George Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> or as his friends call him, Clue. Anyway, it, this was the last moment before they were like, oh, he's Danny Ocean. He's the Dean Martin of the new millennium. We figured it out. That's what he is. Because that really is what he has done ever since. Mm. And this was the movie where Hollywood was like, let's cast George Clooney as a grizzled, unloved by the women of the land sword boat captain in New England who's going to try and drive through a, a perfect storm. He doesn't know it's perfect, but he he sure knows it's a storm. And just a guy who has been, like, beaten down by the world and who gets yelled at by Michael Ironside. And they're like, let's cast George nephew or something of Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> and it is just the weirdest thing. It is the weirdest movie. And I think it's so wonderful. And I guess it was a movie that had very impressive CGI at the time and now has that weird, smooth, late 90s look. It is a love letter to like working men and jobs that were actively dying the same way that Armageddon kind of is. And it's a movie where you went in knowing that people were doomed to die in a shipwreck, which makes me think that this was like a book that was adapted to film partly because it had some commonalities with Titanic. And maybe a studio was like, shipwreck movies, let's try it. Yeah. <laughs> and also to say that, like, if you go in watching this movie knowing only kind of that I think George Clooney is in it, as I did. To me, it was the most wonderful experience because I was like, oh my God, is that John C. Riley? Oh my God, is that John Hawks? Oh my God, is that Michael Ironside? Oh, it's Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. You're just like hit like again and again with this amazing cast. It was so fun. <laughs> I mean, I just ruined the experience, but it was really fun. <laughs> Yeah, if you haven't seen if you haven't seen the perfect storm by now, you know what I think is going to happen. I think it'll be Christmas, and you'll be sitting around with all your older male relatives, and you'll be looking for something to play on Netflix. Yeah, and someone will be like, "Let's play the new alienating Dutch crime documentary," <laughs> and then you'll be like, "Let's put on the perfect storm," and then everyone will be happy, and they will just quietly watch it and stop fighting, probably. Brianna, what's your lived experience with this movie? I, I currently work as a fisheries scientist, or like my introduction into fishery science was working as a fisheries observer up here in Alaska. So for those of you that don't know what a fisheries observer is, basically a third party that goes out on commercial fishing boats and observes what they're catching, 
where they're fishing. It makes it sound like you're sitting in the fish hatchery just looking at all these little salmon fry being like, looks about right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a little more intense than that. But it, it like I went out on a lot of small boats up in Alaska. So I went on uh, a lot of long liners, kind of similar to the one in the movie. Yeah, so I went and spent quite a few trips out on commercial fishing boats and had some interesting things happen at times. Thankfully, nothing too sketchy, though I have a lot of friends that were observers that had uh, sketchy things happen while they were on boats, and you just come out of it with a lot of stories I I think actually the first time I read the book and watched the movie was when I was working as an observer because I was like, you know what? <laughs> I should read that book <laughs> about fishermen that die at sea. <laughs> well, it's like when you're a, t- a teenage girl and you're like, I should read that book about that teenage girl who got buried in a very deep grave. Right. You're like, because yeah. it's very relevant to me right now in a weird way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I read it wasn't just The Perfect Storm. I read a lot of other books about rescues and people and and just like situations that went wrong yeah being out on boats is interesting because I mean I've been on plenty of trips where nothing dangerous happened and it was a really good trip but you're just inherently in a very dangerous situation like just in Alaska Mm -hmm. being out on a boat surrounded by icy cold water you don't have to be doing much and you're still kind of on the edge of being really risky. I don't know. And I I think you're right, Sarah, that my interest in reading about these books is wanting to understand the risk that's around Mm -hmm. you. And I don't think I watched the movie with the crew because I thought (laughs) that would be a little too much, I think. Like, of course, it makes sense that in America you have to show fishermen dying to have a movie that's like, you know what? Fishermen are great. And it's really noble to go out at sea and work really hard for like very little money. I I looked up other movies about commercial fishing. There's not a whole lot in this direct way of representing like what the daily life or, you know, what it's like to be on a commercial fishing boat, like in this, this day and age. I don't know. I didn't come across many. Like it kept reminding me of Jaws because Jaws is just like men on a boat and they are kind of fishing because they're going to kill that shark. The only commonality is it's like men and their relationships at sea. The next thing I think of is like master and commander. I'd love to explore that more. Like why to portray a working class in a working class position that like helps make America run in one way or another. Like why is the only way to illustrate it to show that it's life or death circumstances? (laughs) And is it guilt? We're out here. All that we do is turn ideas into millions of dollars. Like we feel terribly guilty about this. You know who the real heroes are? The people who put their lives on the line for swordfish. Like that's, I'm curious about the psychology of what's going on. That we eat when we take young actresses out to dinner and try to assault them later. Right. As Sarah knows, like I'm, I'm in commercial video production and work a lot in the fisheries or around the fisheries or with fish, fishing communities. And like, there's so many fascinating stories there, but like the actual live stories I think are even more depressing on a lot of ways than guys go out into the water and die at sea like the cost of lobster has not gone up over the past 20 years like people are making the same amount of money that they were making Mm. 20 years ago in that industry even though everything else has gone up fishable waters are going down boat access is going down drug use is up premature death is up Mm -hmm. somehow guys die at sea is like a less depressing story than the actual story of what's going on in the fisheries in a lot of ways Mm. That's really interesting. Because they have a chance. Right. When we did our episode about The Shining, Alex, well, you talk about this fairly often, but you talked in that episode about like, yeah, Maine is like a very dark place. Mm. And Stephen King conveys that in a way that I think you were saying in a way that was very recognizable to you. And that like even just sort of what Jack Torrance does, which is an attempted, you know, family annihilation, like to you at least felt familiar. And I feel like we saw people respond to that. Like a few, like a lot of people were like, yeah, Maine is terrifying. And other people (laughs) were like, oh, really? I always thought Maine was like this cozy, like cable knit, you know, setter dogs, like place. And it's like, yeah. And I, and I feel like Alaska Mm. kind of is similar where like people are able, partly because it's such a tourist dependent economy 
to think of it as like, yeah, it's like pristine and the last frontier, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, right. and. Right. Totally. and the land, as, as John Hodgman says about Maine, and, and the land will try to kill you. Like, <laughs> like rural Alaska, it's beautiful. For a lot of people, it's like a beautiful way of life, but there's some incredibly dark aspects of living in these rural places because of those things like if drugs and alcohol get into the community Mm. while there's this really beautiful way of life living away from the normal hustle and bustle of city life or whatever these rural communities do have like this like darkness in them and I think that's true of a lot of fishing communities too like Mm. I, I reread the book and there was a point the author made the structure and regulations around the swordfish, how the swordfish uh, fishery was managed, had just recently changed, like right before they Uh, went out to sea. And he wasn't really implying like that that contributed, but it's just all a part Mm -hmm. of the mix of there is in the 70s and early 80s, there is quite a boom in fishing, you know, it was like, especially with crab fishing, like come up here, get rich quick. Hmm. And then things crashed, and but there's still, like, the myth. And the crabs would leap into your boat, they would. <laughs> right. In a way, it is for the best. It keeps things mm-hmm. sustainable. But uh, some fishermen are just always kind of have this undercurrent of, like, you know, the good old days. Like, one day we'll get back there and I'll be mm-hmm. back on my feet again kind of thing. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So this movie gets a lot wrong about fishing, (laughs) like what happens in fishing, but like it portrays the characteristics of fishermen and of what fishing communities actually look like decently well, I would say. And something that I've run into with working with these communities in one way or another that are just trying to like get people to buy fish, like just like buy fish, period, ideally fish that is from your waters in one way or another, is that farming had such success over the past 30 years of rebranding through like farm to table movement and stuff because like it was easy to find like Mm, a hot mm. farmer that could talk to a camera or that could look good on camera and like wear a nice like L.L. Bean sweater and like you know like look good and like fishermen don't know how to talk to people who are not fishermen like you can't find someone it's 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 totally like it's like it's like we've been doing it for 10 generations and have talked to nobody outside of our family at all ever and and refused to and are actually at war with the family in the next town over like who the fuck are you gonna put on the cool poster to be like buy fish from this guy there has to be a hot guy who you can just have not talk about I was curious to get your take on the on this movie, Alex, because of where you grew up and being so close to the New England fishery, because I am fascinated by the New England fishery. I've never been over in that area. And wait, can I ask a really basic question? OK, because to me, I guess I always thought a fishery was like a place where you made fish. But <laughs> is it because is it a region? <laughs> Of the ocean? (laughs) No, honestly, this is a great question because in my industry, and it's one of those words that like kind of get thrown around a lot in my line of work. And then when you actually have to like define it, I kind of struggle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The definition on Google is a place where fish are reared for the commercial purpose. Okay. And clarifies that a fishing ground can also be referred to as a place where fish are reared for a commercial purpose. Because they're reared by their mommies (laughs) and daddies. Yeah, (laughs) I think of it as like it's the industrial complex kind of around harvesting a particular species. So if you're saying the salmon fishery, it can be referring to the fleet of vessels like the the boats of the salmon fishery are the, you know, the vessels that are going out and targeting salmon there's the the plants that are wrapped up in it. So it's all of like the different pieces involved in harvesting a particular wow. fish. But in the salmon fishery, yeah, you can refer to it as, you know, the salmon fishery is not doing so hot this year and, you know, hmm. implying that it's going to have ramifications economically too, not just, it's hmm. not just 
biological. So it it's just like the complex of all of these things revolving around harvesting a certain type of fish. Mm. Okay. And then say if you're talking about like the issues in Maine fisheries, you're talking about a bunch of different overlapping fishing mm. communities and sort of like like markets, et cetera. Right. But then you can talk about individual yeah. fisheries within a geography. Yes. I assume this is because like farm raised fish is kind of a thing and like increasingly as I was growing up and so I assume the fisheries were like those were the fish farms <laughs> remember you know there were like several milk campaigns when we were growing up and there was just like the beef campaign yes there was got milk and there was also milk right and then there was beef it's what's for <laughs> dinner and like yes the, the fisheries can't do that huh and they can't be like consider salmon it's largely because of the monopolization over like whoever was doing beef, it's what's for dinner, probably owned 80 to 90 percent of the beef that was being sourced in one way or another or was the trade group for industrial okay. farming. Yes. Oh, wow. With the fisheries. It's still microorganizations based on geography, microorganizations based on specific kinds of fish, different inner politics between those, mm -hmm. yeah. between those. Like there's no unifying fisheries group in the same way there was the beef group. <laughs> oh, that's totally true. And I think that's especially true for New England because the history of fishing in New England goes back so much further than, say, in Alaska. Mm. Um, I know there's probably there's been attempts to say like, hey, you know, if we're going to like step into the next generation, we need to have a little bit more cohesiveness. And there's more cohesiveness within gear types, I think. Like they'll have industry groups representing the longline fishermen here and industry groups representing the pollock troll fishermen, but not as like Fishing as a whole, and at the end of the day, people go into a grocery store, they just see a fish. Mm. There's not that cohesiveness that you find with farming, and, and it comes down to those those structures, those underlying structures of um, industry and government. And I guess seafood is kind of a sometimes food for a lot of Americans, and so right. it just feels like, like less, like people have less of a stake in it. Um, and you're not going to have a like a salmon a day keeps the doctor away kind of a campaign. <laughs> For a long time, I think Catholics were the only people that ate fish in the country. I mean, Jews obviously ate fish. They ate wow. salt, like salted fish yeah. and stuff was part of the. But like, I think Catholics were like the largest consumers. Oh, the filet of fish was invented for Catholics because there was really? a McDonald's. Yeah, there was a McDonald's franchise owner, and I think Pittsburgh. Because McDonald's corporate would like adapt ideas that franchise owners would do sometimes. And he was like, I'm going to do a fish sandwich because a lot of my customers are Catholic and they're not coming in on Fridays. You just blew my mind because I have like always wondered <laughs> why on earth does McDonald's have a fish sandwich? It's because of Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> This movie ends with a dedication to the, I think, 10,000 mm. Gloucester fishers who have died at sea, or the 10,000 Gloucestermen who have died at sea. Yeah. It was, it was the thousands of fishermen that have died since 1623 or something like that. Yeah. I do feel like this movie implies that, like, there is something special and scary about Gloucester, and I want to know about that. You feel Gloucester when you go there. The same way that I talk okay. about the Stephen King darkness in Maine, it's a different kind of darkness. And there's like a, mm. it's like Maine in a lot of ways too, in that there's like a scenic tourist experience in that same geography where some people I'm sure go to Gloucester right. and they are not aware of any of that and they never encounter any of that. And so the reason that number is so high is like fishing, mm -hmm. obviously like people have been fishing in Gloucester for a long time. And if you can imagine like, forecasting used to not really be much of a thing. So mm -hmm. all these fishermen would go out, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, a storm would come through and you just literally have hundreds of men die in one mm. event. Wow. Like this says, in 1766, 19 vessels were lost in a storm while sailing to the Grand Banks. In the 1870s, a time when enormous amounts of sails, sail were rigged aloft to make even speedier schooners' losses became even more staggering. In 1871, mm. 20 schooners and 140 men were lost. Wow. 
1873, vessels, uh, nine vessels and 128 men were lost on George's Bank in North Bay in the summer gale. In February 1877, 13 vessels and 143 fishermen were lost in a gale on George's Bank. Holy shit. So it's like you go out knowing that, like, this could be the day. I think so. Like, especially back then. Hmm. For a lot of people, there's not a question that that is what they are going to do. It's part of an identity. It is dangerous, yes, but, like, that's a part of the whole thing. And I think that's what these movies that are like apologetic love letters to these jobs are really about. But, you know, the the fact that in America so many regions and towns are built around industries that are extractive of the land and extractive of the workers and where like some number of you are going to get killed this year and that's just the situation and it's not like there's another industry you can really be working in. You know, logging is dangerous, coal mining, Mm. destructive, I think, in every way to the communities that involves you know now we have fracking like Mm -hmm. which is funny because like it's not like think of the frackers like that one (laughs) really like the pr around it is right (laughs) like are we ever gonna have like a a movie about the brave frackers who like wake up and you you get out there and you're like i'm a fracker we didn't have like we didn't have it with fracking but we absolutely had it with deep water horizon was that the the bp oil spill yeah Wait, I didn't know they did a movie about yeah. that. Oh my god! Oh yeah, for sure. It's perfect. It's perfect storm on a, on an oil rig. I can't believe I haven't seen this movie because I love disaster movies <laughs> and I love Wahlbergs. Twofer. It's everything you love. So I'm really curious, and maybe this is a good way to like talk about similarities and difference between movie and book because I'm really curious mm. about what it is like to adapt a story because it's weird that this is called the perfect storm because it's not really about the storm it's about the guys and then at a certain point it kind of pivots and it's like no it's about the storm and it's about jonesy and and karen allen and the people and that rich dick with the yacht and you're like oh hello these other people who are suddenly here is the perfect storm was was a moniker by younger is that true like can you talk to us about why he assigned that uh, when he was researching the book, Sebastian Younger, he was talking to a scientist at the National Weather Service. He was living in Gloucester when that storm hit. So he heard mm. about the Andrea mm. Gale and all that going down. Mm. He was talking to a weather forecaster and just sort of offhandedly, this forecaster scientist was like, it was three different storm systems, which even if each of those three had happened in isolation, they would have been bad, but then all of them coming together at once was exceptionally bad. Mm-hmm. And as this forecaster was describing it, he just kind of offhandedly said, oh yeah, it was the perfect storm, which supposedly is a term that gets gets thrown around by meteorologists of the perfect set of events that could have happened to create this uber storm and... Younger just kind of took that and ran with it. I think it just stuck in his huh. brain as like, oh, the perfect storm. It's a good phrase. Like as a writer, you're constantly waiting for these phrases that are kind of sticky in that way. Yeah. I don't know. It wasn't really like used all that much before this book and movie came out and then apparently got used a lot during the financial crisis in 2008. Oh, that was the perfect storm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The reason the financial crisis one sticks out to me so much is that like it was not any one thing. It was a culmination of all of the Mm. things, especially like the human error pieces, how much like modifications to the to the boat might have played into might have played into it going down and then like right re- like violating regulation by not reporting paperwork and like really boring things that potentially led mm. to a disaster that are not like we got to outrun this storm. It's like (laughs) it was modified and maybe took on more water or like weather just turns real fast and there's nothing you can possibly do. You know, again, like much grimmer takeaways than a movie has to offer because like no one wants to be reminded that like a a perfect storm of ineptitude sometimes can be what the the bad thing is. (laughs) And it's not to disrespect Mm -hmm, the guys who died, but like sometimes just the shit hits the fan in exactly the right way. And it as it did in 2008 and as it did in 1990, well and even in this movie like michael ironside is part of the perfect storm because he's like get out there and get me some more swordfish i'm michael ironside i am playing the craven capitalist 
and I am the only Canadian actor here. It's very weird. <laughs> does the book do what this movie, I assume it does, do what this movie does where it's it's focusing on a lot of different stories at a given time? Like, Because it sounds like he deconstructs a lot of what happened at the in the storm. What's that like? I really like the book. I think Sebastian Younger did a very good job with it. Like, it is about the storm, but it's mostly, like, he came to the book with a focus on dangerous jobs. Mm. He does start with the Andrea Gale and the crew and -hmm. talking about their lives and leading up to them leaving for this trip. He's like, there are these five fishermen and then there's the black fisherman who has no backstory or relationships and it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, dude. I think it goes into maybe a little more detail, but yeah, there's definitely like a couple of, of the crew members that he fleshes out quite a bit more it's one of those things sarah it's like when we were watching a league of their own and there's that scene where they like they acknowledge for like three seconds that black women exist yeah the only redeeming thing that they do in this movie about that is like john hawks makes fun of the guy by saying like he can't even speak english good (laughs) that's i guess like the only redemption of the fact that they give that guy no dimension is they remind us that white people are racist yeah they're just like we we have self-awareness yes we do (laughs) (laughs) right he, he goes into some detail, but he definitely focuses mostly on Bobby and Billy Tyne, which is George Clooney's character. I mean, these were all real people <laughs> at the same time. Like these, they were real guys that died on this boat and they lead up to them leaving on the fishing trip, which for me, like one of the things about the movie that I don't particularly like is the owner of the boat, Michael Ironside, he goes into detail about how people didn't particularly trust him in many ways and thought he was doing some things like not getting the boat up to scratch when he should have and Mm. just doing some kind of dodgy stuff to shave off a few costs here and there. There weren't like the stakes that they put in the movie I think it this was just another it was another sword fishing trip it wasn't mm-hmm. like out of the ordinary necessarily mm-hmm. it was they weren't happy to go because they are gone for a month mm. and then they're back for a week mm. like it's <laughs> a long time to be gone and they get to drink and fuck as much as possible in that week as we saw in the movie because you're going back out with the boys for a month Yeah, you try to fit in your life into this really short amount of time, you know, and they blow a lot of money and it's a long time to be gone. So they weren't like stoked about going out again or anything, but there weren't like these stakes of like, you better get me some fish or you're fired. That's really interesting. And then he like talks you through a typical sword fishing trip. And that's where these stories come up. The hook in the hand. Mm hmm. The shark. There's a little shark. He did a reverse quint. He was under the shark. (laughs) He shoots with a shotgun. (laughs) And then there was the, and the rogue wave. They're all mentioned in the book, but they're very like Mm -hmm. short passages that are like, uh, sword fishermen sometimes have had encounters with sharks when they come on their boat and, you know, they're dangerous and, you know, at times they've had to shoot them with a shotgun. (laughs) Imagine being a producer and reading that and coming across those things and just being like, we got to get it all in that one trip. There's a shotgun. There's a... (laughs) We got to have George Clooney shoot a shark with a shotgun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that there's something, especially in the dad context, about like why George Clooney does not work in this role. Yeah. You spoke so well, Sarah, to like Hollywood figuring out what to do with George Clooney. Clooney, like George Clooney had just spent 1994 to this moment on ER and as Batman. And he like, oh, yeah, he's supposed to be the dad of the scenario. He cannot withhold. Affection, no. <laughs> you know, that's one of the he, things. He, there's so many situations in which he's like, if you don't like it, get out. And they're out in the water. And that's like a pretty classic dad thing. Like, if you don't like it, swim home. Like, those are classic dad things. But like yeah. George Clooney is not a dad. Like George Clooney has no fatherly no. authority at all, which makes them supremely fuckable. George Clooney like buys you tequila and like is nice to you when you throw up at his house. He is 100% an uncle. <laughs> he like has this little twinkle in his eye when he's feuding with Wahlberg, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone on the boat is more deadly than George Clooney in one way or another. Even Mark, Wa- little boy Mark Wahlberg. Yes. <laughs> he likes to joke around. The impression I've gotten from other movies, like he's not, I don't know, a mm. really serious actor or anything. This movie was maybe his last sort of attempt at like, I'm going to play a super serious 
swordfish captain and then it just didn't really work (laughs) yeah like he tried it out the script just does not play to his strengths the joy of watching george clooney play a character i think is that like we do not want to watch him be pinned down by reality that's not what he knows how to do and he's one of the only people who you can come along on a ride where everything is easy for him but he doesn't feel like an asshole the only thing he does successfully in this movie is flirt with linda greenlaw Yes. He suddenly is like, oh, yeah, just step aside. I know how to do this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like he does that well. He flirts well. And that's a great and everything else he has. He carries no authority. The one thing I do want to credit George Clooney for in this movie is I I do think that he doesn't exude the authority, but he certainly has like a lot of lines that are written that serve his dad role. And at some point he says, I always find the fish. So don't fuck with me, Mm. which is. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's objectively a hilarious line. (laughs) Because everyone's questioning his authority, rightfully so. And everyone's like, I don't know, George. And he's just like, I know where the fish are, guys. Don't worry about it. It really is. It is like an anti-Ocean's Eleven. Because Ocean's Eleven is everyone having a good time in a desert. And this movie is everyone being angry at sea. And he's like, come on, men, let's go on a little voyage. And they're like, no, fuck you. Again, like, this is the thing that Greenlaw said is, like, she didn't receive a distress signal from him. Like, she's just the last person who talked to him. Right. It acknowledges, Mm -hmm. again, the reality of, like, there's a strong chance it wasn't like we're going to go through the storm. They just got fucking taken out by a storm. And this is a fantasy in that it's, like... If you fight hard enough, at the very least, you can go down swinging. And it's like, nope, sometimes Mm. you just die. Like all the 10,000 other Gloucester folk before you. All of these things just kind of came together and these guys were just in the wrong place. I think a lot of times in dangerous environments, sometimes bad things happen and you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and there's not really anything you can do to like get out of the way of that yeah that is the most unsettling thing for a lot of people and I think we all if we construct things in our lives to not think about (laughs) how close we are to (laughs) something bad happening that's outside of our control a lot of the time well I feel like that's maybe what the people who made this movie fundamentally misunderstand Mm. i mean ironically if you live in la and you make movies for a living you do get in your car every day and go on the freeway and that's pretty dangerous like but in it i guess it just feels much more abstract but i feel like what like this movie takes place in a world where the the deal is just like the trip is not the thing you can have a a bad feeling about Mm. and change your mind it's like your whole life is the thing Mm. that you have to have a bad feeling about and get out of your life is like this you know, this endless trip where basically like at some point, like if you keep going out, your your luck may run out one day or it's just not about luck. It's just like you'll go through some weather and you'll be fucked all of a sudden. The thing that would have prevented them from encountering the storm is just not being fishermen and not feeling like I have to do this job. I have no other options. Life is sort of what's putting you in harm's way to some extent. So I don't know if you remember, but right before they go for the trip, there was a guy who was going to go on the boat, but then at the last minute he decided not to. Oh yeah. Did they have that in the movie or is that? Oh yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Either way, there was a guy that was meant to get on the boat. He had a bad feeling, then decided to get off the boat. In the afterward of, of the book, Younger talks about how that guy he went on to work on another boat literally almost a year later. And mm-hmm. that boat got caught in a, another storm and that boat sunk and he died on that boat. Sounds like Final Destination. Yeah. I was going to say it sounds like It Follows, but I like both of these interpretations, these horror interpretations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what's great about Final Destination and It Follows? And like Final Destination along with Saw was the horror franchise I really fell in love with in the past year for partly autobiographical national news type reasons is like they're both just about death because like mm. the horror of It Follows is like, oh my God, like no matter where I go and how crafty I am, 
like there is this fate following me around that will get me someday. And it's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. It sure is. It's going to snatch you up from your kid and your ex-wife. Don't overbake your horror movie. <laughs> like human beings have like one big real fear and you can just dress, you just put a little bow on that. That's all you need to do with horror. There was like a Washington Post piece that tore this movie apart a little bit. They said, this movie will do for boats what Jaws did for sharks. And I was like, wait, did you misunderstand? What? The enemy of this movie is a storm, not a boat. <laughs> it's not called the perfect boat. <laughs> the scary boat. <laughs> the Andrea Gale. She's going to get you. <laughs> The book pivots at a point where it becomes... Where they ran out of Andrea Gale stuff to say, I assume. Basically, it's like, okay, now I've explained basically everything I can about fishing, the history of Gloucester, and now the storm's about to hit. Okay, so now here are the other characters that are going to be a part of this story, which was the, yeah, the sailboat with the two women. And the, the, it's the Mistral in the movie. Yeah. They changed the, it, the, the real name was something different. I don't know why they changed it, but Mistral is also like, isn't that like, it's a, a scary wind that happens in Europe. So you would only oh. name your boat that if you wanted to get screwed. <laughs> oh, right. I don't know. <laughs> And then, of course, they talk about the National Guard para jumpers. Or mm. That, I think, was basically like Sebastian Younger wanting to tie in this other dangerous job that men do, which is rescuing people at sea. And where you do yeah. jump into the water. Oh, yeah. That's insane. It is Because I was watching it because I don't know anything about anything. So when something happens in a movie, I'm just like, oh, is that real life or is that the movie? Like, would you jump into the water? Yeah, I do appreciate in the movie is and I understandably like this movie would have been four hours had they treated everything with dimension. But like, yeah, they did not attempt whatsoever to make us feel any positive feelings about the other people who are going to die. We're just like introduced suddenly to a bunch <laughs> of new people where the stakes are very high. But we don't have no backstory like no, no. We don't know how the family is at home. We don't know like what bar they drink at. Like, it's just like they're going to die now and we have to care about them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were like do the thing with titanic but do it fast <laughs> and with less people and good god less expensive make it an hour cheaper the book was kind of similar it was just all of a sudden like okay now the storm's hitting now shit hit the fan these people need to be rescued okay here's now the crew of this rescue team but they don't really go into too much detail about who they are the story is still about the boat and part of the story is understanding that when a boat gets in trouble, these are the events that take place. Mm. And in this case, you know, the rescue went horribly. <laughs> or Well, not, it wasn't even a rescue at that point. They were trying to refuel or whatever and mm -hmm. um, weren't able to and had to ditch the helicopter. Surely you would reach a point where you would turn around before you keep trying to refuel but anyway <laughs> it doesn't quite work for the movie because all of a sudden it is like oh there's a, a whole bunch of new people that I need to keep track of and care about maybe I don't know <laughs> and it really is very startling because the movie has like taken so much time with these other characters and I don't I can't think of a better way to do it either mm -hmm. like I, I don't even feel like this is really a criticism it's just like suddenly it's just like oh hi and here are all these other people you've never seen for the first hour and you're like oh all right <laughs> the more the merrier yeah i'm invested in john c Riley's kid who i hope doesn't grow up to be a fisherman like that's what that's where my head's at and now i gotta care about this guy who's in the water but can we talk about the hook in the hand though because i want to i alex if we end without hearing what you think about that i'll be very sad <laughs> of course we can talk about the hook in the hand <laughs> <laughs> what, Sarah, what happens? John C. Riley, eternal sad sack that he is, takes a hook to the hand. Steve Brule. Steve Brule takes a <laughs> hook to the hand and, and basically just gets pulled into the water. And William Fickner has to jump in and save him and prove that he really does love him. I love that they 
do not ever explain what the beef is between John C. Riley and William Fickner. Yeah, I was like, are they brothers? I think that Fickner slept with John C. Riley's ex-wife. But it's mentioned like so in passing in such a way where I was just like, was that actually like him referring to sleeping with his wife or was it like he's just you know, like, oh, that's not what your wife said last night. Like, kind of, kind of dig. Mm, oh, yeah. Okay, so the the egregious situation here. I mean, first of all, like, people do get hooks through their hands and shit happens, and people like lose mm-hmm. limbs. The size hook that went through John C. Riley's hand and the speed with which it came out would have split his hand in half, and like that's oh well, yeah. It would have just been a grisly scene, like because it went, it, it would have been gross. Because it went through like between the thumb, like the muscle between the thumb and the forefinger right yeah but like where there's no bone to stop it from ripping out essentially yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly so that's the first issue and then the other is like if that happened you basically have everyone devoted to like looking for a body in the dark water for hours and ideally you can like even just like see any trace of them and there's just a strong chance that they're dead because they've been swallowed by the Mm. water like the idea that you have someone who just jumps into the water like John C. Riley, in theory should be like seven miles away by the time that he he gets saved and then Figner just like swims like Aquaman and pulls him out of the water oh totally they were setting at night too like it would have been pitch black. <laughs> I just feel like the crew on this boat never seemed that cold. Like, I'm sure it's cold. No. <laughs> like, it can't not be cold, but they're just like standing in the pouring rain with a t-shirt on. <laughs> This is, I think, something that would bother you about Open Water 2, which I think is superior to Open Water 1. Mm. And Open Water 2 is just a bunch of idiots who, like, jump off of a yacht in the ocean and then, like, no one put a ladder down and they're like, oh, fuck, we can't get back on the boat. But they're all treading water like champs for hours, (laughs) hours and hours. And none of them are expressing the fact that they're exerting themselves. Like, the movie, I think, tries really hard to do, like, a realistic, seemingly low-stakes situation where you would be totally screwed, but they're like, and also, like, none of these people produce lactic acid, and they met in a support group for that. Right. <laughs> well, one of the things that Greenlaw talks about, it, which I, I found especially fascinating in the context of stuff we were talking about earlier, which is, like, sometimes mm. just shit happens, mm. is this movie, sh- again, because it wants to suggest that maybe there's something you can do in the face of your mm. annihilation, mm. it shows them working, and she's like, usually if you're in a situation where you're in rough sea no one is doing anything you're just standing you're just basically like she talked about a situation where she was on a boat for for, I think four days where they were facing those kinds of waves that they're facing in this movie and it was like you know like 50 foot waves and you basically just stand lose control of your body more or less because your muscles take such a hit Mm. you can't go to the bathroom in the proper way so you just basically like piss and Uh. shit yourself you don't eat and you just try to get through to the other side. Like, you don't have a torch that you're on the top of a boat and, like, you're trying yeah. to fix it. Oh, thing. yeah. But that would have been so boring, movie-wise. Right. You know, like, the last hour of this movie, this guy's just standing there. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember when I first watched the movie, like, as an observer, I remember just feeling like, I don't feel like they're, like, bracing themselves enough. I was out on a boat in February and we had a couple of days with not seas like that, but some fairly big seas. And yeah, you jog through the waves like you're just trying to like you just need to keep the boat moving because that's the most comfortable thing to do. And it, you know, keeps the boat stable and all that. Fishermen are smart. They would have come up with something way safer than what they were doing. <laughs> than like climb, like rock climb out to this pole <laughs> and fly around. Like, no. My impression of people who like live and work every day in like dangerous, low margin for error situations is that like you don't invent ways to show off because you don't have to. Right. Because something's always going wrong anyway. And you, and you don't get wet. <laughs> You know, you're weighing, like, do I need to do this thing right this second? Like, what's the more dangerous thing? Like, me trying to address Mm. this issue right now. I mean, to be fair, there would potentially be situations like that on a boat where it's like, shit, we really need to, like... If that little anchor is flying around and smashing windows, you definitely need to do something about it. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, having someone 
just tie a rope around their waist and shimmy out to the end of the boom. I don't know that that's like the greatest solution. And you and you feel like they wanted like an action Clooney sequence, and that was why they did. Yeah, yeah, that's what they needed. Yeah, there's something missing the point about the idea of like, well, like they're doomed, and everyone going to see this movie, I think, knew these characters were doomed. Like I remember when this came out, I think my dad watched it, and I was like, I don't want to watch something where I know everyone is going to die. Yeah, but at the same time, I love Titanic. Titanic does something kind of ballsier in a way where it's like Jack and Rose's characters like have things to do because their goal is to stay on the boat for as long as possible basically which they manage to do and then they like end up in the water and then they are totally screwed and the movie like goes at like what its stated premise midway through is like half the people on this ship are going to die and of course it ends up being like three quarters And you know that, and the movie knows that, and it knows that, like, everything that everyone is doing this whole time is pointless and meaningless, and they are all basically just facing their mortality. And we actually get that for, like, a protracted period of time in Titanic, which I think does what disaster movies are at heart about, which is, like, to tell us a story where we can, through proxy characters, come face-to-face with some kind of experience of mortality, but in a way that we can face... But I think this movie tries to go extraordinarily easy on its viewer by kind of the characters feel that they have some way to change their fate and tr- until truly the last second when they know that they can't. And I think we as the viewer get to believe that with them. Mm. My idea of what the perfect storm is in the context of this story is like it is economics. This movie is trying to make the economic motivator stronger like in this instance Mm-hmm. so that it can kind of stand in for just sort of the punishing economics of commercial fishing. And I feel like the perfect storm is the thing that, like, maybe you think you can power through it because you're from Gloucester, but, like, this is new and you are fucked. The legend lives on The sea in its shed never gives up her dead When the gales of November come early When the skies of November turn gloomy Does anyone know where the love of God goes? When the waves turn the minutes to The searchers all say that it made whitefish pay If they'd put fifteen more miles behind her If they'd put fifteen miles behind her Oh, they might have split up or they might have capsized They may have broke deep and took water So maybe George Clooney's the dad in this movie. We know that John C. Riley is the dad because in the beginning he says, have you seen my boy? Which is his closest attempt to a New England accent. <laughs> is there a daddy? And if so, who would we say that it is? Based, Alex, on your comment on how hard it must have been to 
be a person who can do a, an actual Boston accent surrounded <laughs> by this cast. I think it's Mark Wahlberg who kept a straight face the whole time. And I feel like this movie was important to his career. This is when he was there trying out like Marky Mark movie star and it worked. I would love to see behind the scenes footage of Mark Wahlberg just laughing in people's faces while they were doing these accents at him because they are all <laughs> so bad. What I read is that George Clooney just outright refused to even try. Which really is one of the best choices you can make. <laughs> yes, it is. I think if he had tried, it would have just been super distracting and like, it's just George Clooney with an accent. You know, it's not totally. convincing in any way. There are a whole lot of people in Boston who don't have big Boston accents. Like, just for the record. Fishermen have accents. Well, okay. But George Clooney is just like, he's just a fisherman with no accent. He's yeah. just one in a million. He's like a white leopard. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I have fond memories of Jeremy Renner's accent in the town, but I think that he just leaned on being a dirtbag. I think sometimes that's a thing you can do too, is like lean into the CD elements of your character. Mm -hmm. But yeah, George Clooney was just the guy from ER. He's like, yeah, I'm Dr. Doug Ross and I'm into fishing now and that's all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe Linda Greenlaw in this case, like, yeah. mm. I think it's just like she is, you know, at the top of her game. She's doing really well. Like she is just killing it as a swordfish captain. The whole like flirty thing between her and Billy like annoyed me because that definitely wasn't in the book. And I'm sure it wasn't a real thing. Mm -hmm. It was just something in the movie like, oh, here's a lady. Like, let's have George Clooney flirt with her. <laughs> They're like, let's give George one scene that he knows how to do in his sleep. <laughs> right. I I was worried that they were going to make it like, oh, George, like there's girls beating you at fishing. Like, how do you feel about that? I thought they were going to try to mm. work that in. Oh, I can't believe a female swordfish captain is doing better than you. Like, who are you as a, as a man? Like, why aren't you, you know, pulling your weight in that way? But they, I don't feel like they leaned into that really, which I appreciated. Yeah. They just were like, hey, she's, a, she's just an awesome captain. She's really good at her job. And on those merits alone, that's why you should aspire to be her, not bringing the fact that she's a female swordfish captain trying to do it. Mm -hmm. Linda Greenlaw is a main celebrity, like one rung down from Stephen King style. Really? Yeah, like people know who Linda Greenlaw is. Why do they know who she is? What's her significance? She's written, I think, three or four books. She's She writes mysteries. Oh, that's so great. Oh, Linda. She's beloved here. Wow. Huh. I didn't, that's great. And I had forgotten that she's portrayed in this movie in any way, because I do think that yeah. it's nice that they put her in the movie. They give her no depth in the movie. They give her no context. Mm. And I'm glad that in a way, because I think that if they'd done it, they would have leaned towards doing it the bad way, the way that you just described, Brianna. Right. Mm. Mm. But I was I was heartened to be like, oh, yeah, Linda Greenlaw is portrayed in this movie. This is fantastic. So I, I'm going to go with her. And if you read any interviews with her or read those, read, I read All Fishermen Are Liars. She's great. Like her personality is great. She's very no nonsense. She has no interest in like the flourishes of the Hollywood treatment. I, I like her a lot. Yeah. Well, and also if you're going to be portrayed in a Hollywood movie that like makes up a whole bunch of stuff about everything. The person based on you might as well flirt with George Clooney. <laughs> she has said exactly that. She's like, for all the things that got wrong, like, how could you complain about this portrayal? <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Brianna King for joining us. We had a delightful time with Brianna talking about the bright side and the dark side of being alive. <laughs> <laughs> how scary the water can be thank you so much Brianna thank you to Carolyn Kendrick our fabulous producer our music director person who just makes the show sound good and makes the songs for the show we love you so much thank you Carolyn for everything you do carolynkendrick.com uh, you can find Carolyn there you can find Carolyn social media you can catch up with all of the things that she's up to she's the greatest I'm happy that she's a part of this whole thing She uh, otherwise it's just Sarah and I having a conversation with each other and friends and no one has any idea what's going on and there's not even songs i've said it before we're working on a situation where uh we put out a compilation of some of the songs that have appeared on the show it's like a it's a tough thing to do 
because there's like rights involved. Uh, but we're working on it, and I look forward to sharing that when that finally happens. Again, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for the beats to make the transitions work. We really appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you so much for doing everything you do. We're trying to gauge based on just like what the vibe of the week is, what's going to come out next. So keep an eye on social media. We'll let you know what's happening there. And that's it. You're good. We appreciate you so very, very much. Thank you for being a part of this thing. All right. We'll talk to you soon.